The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as we all become a little bit more aware of our surroundings and, you know, cleanliness and everything really in, in association with the pandemic, it is a good time to talk to Jonathan Webb, who's founder and CEO of App Harvest. It's based in Lexington, Kentucky, but it's basically an ag tech company building the world's largest indoor farms, which, of course, you know, will have sustainable fresh fruits and vegetables year round with no chemical pesticides and 100 percent rainwater. So, Jonathan, very, very excited to speak with you today. First of all, give us a little bit more of an idea of App Harvest's clientele and also how many farms you have now up and down Appalachia. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so App Harvest has set out to build uh, some of the world's largest controlled environment agriculture facilities. Uh, and we're doing it here in central Appalachia, where we can get to about 70 percent of the U.S. in a one-day drive. Uh, right now, we just launched our uh, first flagship farm, which is nearly 2.8 million square feet uh, under glass. Uh, to put that in perspective, it's nearly twice as large as, as Amazon's largest distribution center. So, so very large in scale. Uh, and we're focused on growing fruits and vegetables. Uh, and, and our first product is tomatoes, which uh, tomatoes right now are the number one produce import from Mexico, nearly 4 billion pounds last year. So uh, we're, we're happy to be on store shelves uh, as of last week, and, and we're selling to some of the top 25 grocers here in the U.S. What had more of an impact on your business, Donald Trump being president or the pandemic? Uh, well, yeah, we, we've had great relationships on both sides of the aisle uh, with uh, the new administration coming in and obviously having a focus on ESG. Uh, that's something that's core to our business. We'll, we'll be a public benefit corporation uh, traded on the NASDAQ. We're a B Corp. Uh, so, so obviously ESG is core to, to who we are, uh, but but then there's the conversation on food security and resiliency in the U.S. and and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to truck a fruit and vegetable two weeks, two thousand miles, uh, import it from another country and get to the East Coast and Midwest and Southeast. So we have a long way to go here in the U.S. of rebuilding agriculture. Uh, and creating systems that that are resilient for for our future uh, with climate disruption and, and demands for food. Uh, you you look at the UN who came and visited us recently, the UN Security Council, and they predicted the world needs 50 to 70 percent more food by 2050. Uh, we all have to work together to to build a much stronger, resilient food system. We have to utilize technology and infrastructure to do that. Uh, and for us, we, we don't really think it's a left or right conversation. It's it's really both sides of the aisle need to be at the table. Sure. It is probably a price conversation, though, right? How much more does it cost to buy, you know, produce from your farms? I presume it has to cost more. 
No, that's a great question. I mean, our job and, and my job here is to make sure we're not raising prices for, for the everyday American. Uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in Kentucky in, in the middle part of the country, and, and I can tell you, you know, you look at most mothers and fathers across the U.S. that, that are going to the grocery store, they're just worried about putting food on the table, uh, and we definitely cannot raise their prices. Uh, and we can do that through scale uh, and through our efficiencies of how we're operating. We run completely on recycled rainwater. We have no water cost. And if you look at a fruit and vegetable, 95% of a fruit and vegetable is water. Uh, we're in a water-rich region. We're able to collect that rainwater. We also, you know, the distribution where we can get to major markets in a one-day drive, uh, that reduces our trucking by a week and two weeks, also cost savings. Uh, so there's a multitude of factors as, as to how we're able to back into our price. Uh, but but at the end of the day, we, we absolutely are, are, are committed to, to selling a fruit and vegetable at or around the same price than what consumers already see at the grocery store. But, you know, Jonathan, we hear from farmers all the time how very, very difficult it is to actually, you know, make some profit in this world and that it's it's just it's just so hard and you know you have to make sure you pick your crops right for the year you have to make sure that you avail yourself of all the subsidies that are you know available to farmers and so on and it's still hard to just even make a living for a single farmer how are you guys managing to do it for you know a a, a multitude of farms well it's it's where we're we have to use technology and, and we have to build farms for the future and you know, you look at the last great technological revolution that hit American farming, it was the tractor. And, and we really have not seen a significant uh, you know, piece of technology hit American farming since the tractor. Uh, and, and now, you know, the way we operate our farm, we're, we're using uh, industrial sensors and software, uh, can operate the farm on an iPhone and iPad. We're, we're controlling wow. the environment to optimize for the plant uh, and we have to use technology, and, and there's an upfront cost to that, but then we're able to uh, recoup that cost over time. And as far as you, you talk about farmers having to fight against the climate that's changing, you know, we don't have to worry about that. We grow indoors. We control our climate. Uh, and and what I, my background was in solar. I was a part of building some of the largest solar in the U.S., yep. and we've tried to say this is the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. Well, you know, I can't wait to go and uh, tour one of these farms at some point because uh, they really do sound fascinating. And hopefully the technology will take off uh, and and other people will be able to take advantage of it as well. Jonathan, thank you so much. We will stay in touch. Jonathan Webb is founder and CEO of ag tech company App Harvest, some of the largest indoor farms in the world in Appalachia. Looking at the U.S. dollar here, the DXY index sitting just above 90. That's the lowest level it's been since back in 2018. And uh, it's down about 12, 12.5% from the pre-pandemic highs. Our next guest think that the dollar can stay lower for longer. We are pleased to welcome Stephen Roach, senior fellow at Yale University and former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia to discuss his column here. The weaker dollar trend is only just beginning. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. What is your call on the dollar and what's driving it? Well, last uh, June, I wrote an opinion piece on Bloomberg that argued the dollar could drop as much as 35% uh, by the end of 2021. And I cited three um, factors that led me to that seemingly outrageous conclusion. Uh, one, a um, uh, sharp widening of the balance of payments of the current account deficit. 
Uh, two, the, the, there was a myth behind the, the notion that there is no alternative to the dollar, the so-called TINA defense. And uh, thirdly, I, I stressed that I thought the Federal Reserve would do nothing uh, to defend a weaker currency as central banks normally do. They tighten monetary policy to uh, uh, stave off a weaker uh, currency, and, and this Fed is not going to tighten for any currency-related reasons. So, you know, I uh, came up with this 35% uh, call, and, you know, we're about a third of the way there, and, and so there's uh, more to come if I'm going to be right. Yeah, I mean, the Fed may not do anything. Is there anything that Janet Yellen might do directly or indirectly as Treasury Secretary, Stephen? Well, look, I have huge respect for Janet Yellen. She's got a lot on her plate, Bunny, and um, I think you know you'll you'll start to hear echoes of, of, of Bob Rubin in uh, Janet Yellen, where she just simply says that you know the U.S. Uh, is uh, always in favor of a strong dollar, but uh, no, there won't be anything other than the sort of rhetorical uh, statements, uh, rather than any concrete action to, to stave off this weakness. Because, Stephen, it appears, you know, if we do listen to Fed Chairman Powell, um, some seemingly, you know, obviously some very strong commentary since the beginning of this pandemic about the interest rate environment and his outlook lower for longer, talking about, you know, it in years, not quarters. Do you expect that stance to stay? Yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, if, if anything, it's, it's a more... Uh, a stronger stance for sustained monetary accommodation than it was when I first thought the dollar would fall uh, six months ago. The Fed, as you know, has, has adopted this new um, framework of average inflation uh, targeting, which means it's going to forgive any short-term uh, overshoots relative to their 2% um, uh, price st- stability metric. So, um, you know, if anything, they're going to stay easier for longer and when countries have big current account deficits, they can uh, do one of two things, uh, or both. They, they can allow the uh, monetary policy to tighten, or um, uh, you know, let let the uh, the currency go. And with with the Fed uh, sort of uh, uh, giving up on the, the monetary policy angle, the currency will will absorb the bulk of the adjustment. So, Stephen, when you say weakness, it's obviously weakness versus, you know, other assets, other currencies. Will it be primarily, you know, the, the Chinese yuan? Will it be the euro, yeah. British pound? Where will we see the weakness uh, most obviously? I think it'll be pretty broadly based, uh, Vani. I think you'll see it again. Uh, the renminbi, which has been strengthening steadily and looks like it's going to be going up a good deal further this year. But you'll also see it against um, the euro. The, you know, the euro has, uh, I think right now, I would say, is probably the most undervalued major currency uh, in, in the world. It's, um, uh, you know, it's down um, still on a broad trade-weighted basis, about 4% from its um, March 2014 post-crisis um, uh, high. And, uh, you know, I've been a Eurosceptic basically all my life, largely because while, while the Eurozone has a single currency and a single central bank, it's never had a, a unified fiscal policy. And that now seems to be changing 
there was a deal cut in July of uh, last year, uh, the so-called Next Generation uh, EU fund, uh, complete with uh, pan-European bond issuing authority that I think is a you know a potential game changer in terms of a European fiscal policy. So I, I think you know Europe will get through this pandemic, which they're suffering mightily from uh, again right now. And I think there's a uh, a compelling case for the upside for what is probably the most undervalued major currency in the world. Stephen, I'd love to call on your experience as chair of Morgan Stanley Asia. We now have a new administration in the White House. How do you think our policy should evolve with China over the coming years, given what we've experienced over the last four? Well, look, um, you know, anything is better than what we've um, been through over the past uh, four years. I, I'm hopeful that there'll be a, a measured, careful reassessment of all of the actions that were taken uh, during the Trump administration. I think um, I look for the Biden administration to do that. Nothing immediate, uh, no major breakthrough, but I'm hopeful that uh, we can uh, once again initiate a more constructive uh, exchange on uh, big issues we have in common, like um, global health policy and climate change, uh, and then begin to develop a more uh, I think, a sustainable framework of engagement on some of these tough structural issues that uh, were uh, put on the table uh, by the Trump administration uh, uh, several years ago in terms of uh, innovation policy, intellectual property rights, protection, force technology, transfer, uh, cybersecurity, subsidies to state-owned enterprises. These are really important issues, and I, I give the Trump administration credit for raising them, but they've provided nothing in the way of resolving them. The so-called phase one trade deal did nothing on these issues. That should be immediately, uh, I, would, I would hope, uh, abandoned. And uh, I think there's a much better framework to engage on the structural issues uh, that I would hope the Biden administration uh, could begin to roll out. Stephen, we'd love to talk about China for a lot longer, but unfortunately our time is up. Uh, but do come back again soon. We really need to sort of focus on China and exactly what's been going on over there. You know, I think the pandemic is, uh, as much as we've talked about China over the last year, I think the pandemic has, has made us focus a little bit uh, more on the United States in the last little while. So thank you to Stephen Roach, of course, who has a, a huge, huge history with China and Asia more broadly. He's senior fellow at Yale University, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and do have a read of his column, The Weaker Dollar Trend is only just beginning. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The British pound is just a little bit stronger today. We're keeping an eye, of course, on earnings. About two-thirds of the S&P 500 companies are reporting this week. And... Uh 
Also want to point out that uh, Leon Black out at Apollo this after he got caught paying for Jeffrey Epstein to the tune of $158 million. The private equity titan was willing to overlook apparently that Epstein had served 13 months in a Florida jail, but it all came to a head over the weekend. And after meetings between the three owners, Black is out and there is a new person in his place. And that is your latest Bloomberg Business Flash. Let's get now to some of those earnings this week. Karen Ubelhart, a senior industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, obviously covering the likes of GE and 3M. Karen, what are we looking for this week? Uh, you know, um, we're going to certainly see uh, sequential improvement, but everybody's going to really be looking um, to 2021. Um, companies have not been giving guidance for most of 20. Um, I think a lot of them will give us some guidance on 2021 because things have stabilized and are going up in the right direction. I mean, today's story was GE on the cash flow side. That's that's really why that's up so much. But, you know, it looks like things are stabilizing uh, and we're going to see, um, you know, uh, improvement ahead, better in the second half. But people really want to get comfortable that 21 is going to be a decent year. Now, where is the demand coming from, Karen? Because, you know, we're seeing some data really holding up in terms of the consumer today with consumer confidence and so on. And now it looks like some of these big industrials are also seeing demand. Is it domestic demand? Um, it's well, China's China's up a lot. Um, you know, U.S. is coming back. I mean, it's mixed. It's really by it's really by end market. Like G, um, 3M was talking about home improvement and personal safety. You know, they make the respirators, data centers, things like that. But there and a big pop in auto production just because you know it had been much slower um, earlier in the year. And um, GE really it was healthcare and stabilization. Some of their other businesses, but uh, like power, but that's really an internal story. Aviation was bad, but not as bad as expected. You know, so so you know, um, it's it's really you know um, con- uh, uh, home improvement, some spots in healthcare, anything related to safety. You know, Honeywell is going to talk about personal safety too. That's going to be better than expected. Um, you know, because of, of COVID. So you know. I wouldn't say we're back home, but we're certainly directionally we're going in the right way. Yeah, these companies pivoting just a little bit. Now, will, will they and have they spoken about supply chains and how they have forced those supply chains to, to get a little bit more, um, you know, lubricated in some ways so that, you know, the likes of PPE and some of this healthcare equipment can get produced faster and get to the places necessary? Yeah, that's gotten much, much better. I mean, 3M um, had a, uh, you know, has quadrupled production and they got to their $2 billion in, in, in respirators um, for 2020. And they were, you know, a quarter of that earlier in the year and there wasn't really supply issues. Um, I'd say the same thing um, in Honeywell and some of the others. So that, that supply chain really isn't coming up that much anymore. Interesting. Um, so analysts aren't even asking about it. It's just sort no, of solved. A lot of people, a lot of around the world, a lot of places are back to work. They've learned how to manage around yeah. um, the virus. Now, we obviously have a new administration. It wouldn't have been for the last quarter, but it will be for the next quarter. So are any of these companies making decisions based on the fact that we now have a Biden administration in terms of uh, you know, foreign policy and how their international outlook might be? Uh, well, it's certainly um, with, you know, trade barriers probably getting a little bit better, um, you know, working on our um, global relationships. I think that's, incre- you know, incrementally will be better. I don't think anybody's going to make major strategic changes. Um, I, I 
I would say um, there is they, there may be some internal opportunities like like infrastructure, you know, because he has some big spending plans and it's quite broad based. It's not just let's let's fix the roads. Um, so there'll there'll probably be um, some domestic opportunity. Um, so I think people are hopeful, but not making major shifts yet, but certainly hopeful. Yeah, now when you say, you know, domestic opportunity, we're obviously talking about build America back, right? I mean, how how much are these companies lobbying to get a place in that choir and how much are they sort of uh, looking to divert some of their resources to projects that might come down the pike? Well, you know, I, I, I think I think it's going to be a, a, a very broad-based program. As a, you know, like the, there will be traditional infrastructure, but there's also talk of a big focus on climate, um, you know, which will be a big thing, and energy savings, et cetera. There's um, there's talk of investment in data infrastructure for um, rural areas, et cetera. So um, there's a lot of opportunity for these companies if we get the spending. And, and with um, the Democrats having the majority and the White House, some things might be able to happen on, on that front. So, uh, you know, GE obviously is soaring today. But if you take a look at year over year, we're still down 1%. So it has a ways to go. How much more can Larry Culp do to revive the giant? Um, you know, I think there's um, a lot of room to go still on the power side, which was where their big problems were. But you're starting to see stabilization. And now they've had a couple of quarters where they've made money. So there's still a lot of room to go on that front. Um, there's the room to go on renewables. And now and then the other thing, the biggest thing, that, the biggest swing that they can do on the on the um, business side is, you know, get a little help from aviation. And they're expecting some improvement in the second half. That's where they made two thirds of their money. And then COVID, it just collapsed. But um, that's going to be better in 21. But, you know, if they got lucky on that side, they they could really beat. But right now, it's it, you know, they say, and they're right, they're fixing the things they can fix. And they've been in a two-year program to turn power around and renewables around. And you're starting to see the, some of the benefits of all that cost cutting. And then aviation did, you know, it's terrible, but they did, you know, as well as they could do, given that demand is down 35% this year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what will they do with aviation? Is, is everything on pause right now? And, and can it be... Uh, free of cost, if you like, you know, while while all of these aviation units are waiting to to, to move back into regular gear. Yeah, they've taken a billion, a little million, uh, more than a billion out of um, costs in the aviation business. So they've they've been able to sort of stabilize um, the collapse, and then you know, as people get back to uh, back to travel, even incrementally, that might help the parts business. And frankly, that's where they make their money. And then um, the Max 737 is gonna, is being produced again, not nearly at the levels that they had hoped, but certainly up is better than down, right? So um, that's going to help them as well on the aviation OE side. Um, but they really need people to travel again. And uh, that should get better as the year goes on. All right, Karen, thank you. Up is definitely better than down for most stakeholders from employees to uh, management to shareholders and I guess the general public as well. So thank you so much for all of your intelligence. Karen Ubelhart is Senior Industrial Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and keep an eye out for more intelligence from her on other industrials that haven't reported just yet. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. 
Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. All right, it is time to bring in our cross-asset reporter, Sarah Ponzak, who's keeping an eye on everything that's going on across the markets. And it doesn't seem that there's all that much going on, at least overall in the equity markets today. Sarah, where is the action? Right, everything that's going on today. It's a pretty quiet day as of this morning. If you do break it down, though, you do see some larger moves at the more micro single stock level. And Microsoft, I'll point out, Microsoft reporting earnings after the bell today. If you look at Microsoft today, higher by 1.3% at the moment. That's higher for a sixth straight day. Uh, so we have a bit of a winning streak going on. And Microsoft deposited at a record high the last time I checked on my screen uh, just ahead of earnings season. So we're seeing this phenomenon where ahead of big tech reports, this is the busiest week for earnings season. According to Bloomberg Intelligence, we have about 120 companies that are going to come out and report. That amounts to about 36 percent of S&P 500 market cap. Granted, that's because many of these large companies are reporting. Microsoft today, tomorrow we'll hear from the likes of Apple, Tesla, Facebook, for example, and those three companies alone represent over a tenth of the S&P 500. Uh, But into this, we have seen big tech all of a sudden start to take the lead once again. And to give you a sense, you look at last week, for example, uh, last week we saw S&P 500 growth beat value by the most since 2008. So we had seen this rotation away from big tech for quite a while, really ever since we got the rotation uh, in late summer and the months of August, September, uh, for example. But now we are seeing these companies really come back and start to hit record highs just ahead of earnings reports. All right, sir. So you're talking about big tech companies, blue chip companies, but you wrote an article recently about Blue Sphere Corporation. What's Blue Sphere? Why should we care? Right. So Blue Sphere Corporation is representative of what's been going on really for the past month, month and a half or so. Now, Blue Sphere is a penny stock company. Uh, just last week, before last week, it didn't even trade for a penny. Uh, it traded for a fraction of a penny. And lately, we have seen this boom in penny stock trading. In the month of December, if you look at uh, over-the-counter stocks, the volume that we saw, we saw more than one trillion shares trade. That was the first time in a decade or so. All of a sudden, We see massive volume in these penny stocks and just pops here and there. Some say it's just another frost marker, for example, just added onto the list of what we've been seeing seeing with GameStop lately. Uh, But Blue Sphere last week, uh, it was the start of the week, we saw it just pop more than 450%, almost out of the blue. It came out of nowhere. But what I did was I went back and I really dug into some of the chat rooms where you see folks talking about this stuff, for example, on StockTwits, on Reddit, uh, on discords that are really dedicated to Reddit users, for example. And what was really fascinating to watch was just that over the weekend, before we saw that 450% pop, you just saw conversation really, really start to heat up about the stock, seemingly out of nowhere. Now, those on, on the sites will say it's a green energy stock. They turn waste into energy. It's because of the Biden policies that we're going to see. The stock going to the moon in their terms. Um, but it's just fascinating because as an example of one of many, these are typically the types of conversations and the bills that you see ahead of the time a penny stock really just goes viral. Is it possible to tell in advance which ones will and which ones won't? I imagine that there were other conversations taking place as well where the stock didn't pop 450% afterwards. 
Yeah, certainly. And conversation on Blue Sphere, for example, had been heating up for a while. It really started the week before. There were a few comments here and there. But then over the weekend, you just hit critical mass. And, and you saw on Stockwoods, for example, you can see the amount of people who follow a stock. That kept going up by the thousands, the thousands. And, and by the night of, even and some of the members who are more so vocal were, were joking around the night of saying that they couldn't sleep, asking others if they were still awake because they were anxious <laughs> of what was going to happen when financial markets opened. It's pretty pretty remarkable. Um, but, yeah, certainly there are those who really try to hype up a stock, up a stock, and it might not work. And the way I went about doing this was I actually I found Blue Sphere on the day that it popped 450% by, by looking up and ranking stocks by volume. And volume on this company was over 2 billion shares, which was a record, and really that had never happened before for this company. It came out of nowhere. This is an off-exchange stock, hasn't reported financial disclosures in years. Um, so that's where I got started, and then I walked backwards from there. And what you uncover is, is quite amazing. Blue Sphere, uh, it's trading a little bit over $0.02 cents per share, up about 2% today, 225 million shares traded. Year-to-date, the stock is up almost 3,900%. So, so as you talk, Sarah, to strategists and so on, I mean – should we be concerned about some of these types of speculative moves in the market, including like a GameStop? Right. So, so typically what we hear from professional investors is that this is another signal that there is exuberance in the market. And it asserts itself in different ways. You see it in the penny stock boom. You see it in the likes of GameStop and BlackBerry and AMC these days. Uh, you see it in, in the Back boom and IPO pops. But there's, yep. there's many ways that this exuberance really asserts itself in markets. But we've now been hearing for months that this is something people need to worry about. This is something people should be concerned about. And yet the broader market has continued yep. to move higher and act just fine. Um, so it just goes to show that even if you do believe that we're in a bubble, it's really, really hard to time when these things might come to an end. 11 employees it has, <laughs> according exactly. to the Bloomberg. It's just an extraordinary story. Sarah Ponzak, thank you so much for joining us. Cross Asset Reporter looking at BlackBerry here, a name from my past. Yes. Stock's trading at 18, just under $19 a share, Vani. What does uh, it do was trading even now? As low as 4 or $5 uh, just recently. Probably so crypto. go figure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.